Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Author and archaeologist Bob Clark charts the progress of aviation through airfields and asks why some stations are located where they are. Well, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me at the back? Is the, the microphone's working okay? Brilliant. Uh, I warn you, this is my first outing with PowerPoint. Okay? <laughs> Just in case anyone there. Uh, and it raises an eyebrow. Okay? Thank you very much, Chairman. Well, as we say, my name's Bob Clark. Uh, I've been involved with archaeology on and off and, and with the university on and off for about the last 15 years, we could say. This is a picture of me at Silbury Hill, for those of you who are familiar with that, on a visit there. Uh, just a little bit of background. Yes, prolif prolific author. Most of my uh, interest archaeologically lies with prehistory. However, most of my authoring, as you can see, fits the Cold War. So this is, and, and, and airfields are one of the things that span over this. I'm also the review editor for the uh, Wiltshire Archaeological Natural History magazine, uh, which, is the, uh, which is now under Wiltshire Studies, our Devizes Museum. Some of you are presumably familiar with that. Okay, enough of that. For just over a decade, I worked at an airfield called Boscombe Down, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, near uh, just north of Salisbury. Um, as kinetic archaeologist, or one of those. Kinetic doesn't mean we move around a lot, of course. That was just the company name. Uh, before that, it was the Defence Evaluation and Research. Before that, it was Defence Research Agency. It's one of these quangos that, that clips through many, many uh, machinations. We spend a lot of time looking at rabbit holes, because as, you, as you're probably aware, rabbits, when they dig in or burrow into uh, ancient monuments, do... Apart from the damage they do, they often uh, produce material. We had uh, quite a bit of flint and pottery, courtesy of the rabbits there. Um, some minor excavation. Some was undertaken just by ourselves. This is Colin Kirby on the right, who was a senior, uh, senior archaeologist on the site when I first started. Um, a lot of work with Wessex archaeology on that expansion of um, Amesbury. I don't know if anyone's been there recently and seen, seen the size of Amesbury now and how it's encroaching onto the Salisbury Road uh, and, and indeed onto the boundaries of the airfield, it has to be said. Well, a lot of that landscape was actually MOD-owned originally. So therefore, even though it was sold on for development, we had to keep an eye on what was going on archaeologically because you, you never know. Anyway, so this is a footprint of a demolished building, by the way, built in 1948. Uh, and, and structures are one of the things we're going to talk about tonight, actually briefly, existing archaeology within the airfield boundary. One of the other things we did was preside over the destruction of many buildings on that site over the years. Some of you may be aware that the Ministry of Defence like to pull their buildings down if they're not using them because that cuts down on the care and maintenance cost of, of keeping the structure going. This is the demolition of Building 17, well, many airfields, if anyone's been on an airfield, all buildings have numbers for the fire brigade and everyone else to navigate their way around. But also, the number suggests how old that building is. Obviously, Building 17 tells you that this was a very, very early structure, and it was actually the officer's mess from, uh, from ironically, 1917, from the training depot station that was originally built there. And when this came down, uh, you can maybe just see here a grass lump well, that is a Bronze Age round barrow. Well, we were interested in that, obviously. Not so interested in the building that came down. And we had a visit from English Heritage. And this is going back a few years now. 
who pointed out that, of course, did we record that before we took it down? Or indeed, should it not have been listed? You know, so, so immediately we're on the back foot there. But what it made us do is look through the archive at Boscombe Down. And what we discover is a, a quite, I wouldn't say unique record, but certainly a comprehensive record of that site's history from its early days through the archive, through the photographs. Um, and this got us to thinking, okay, we can maybe start looking at how these buildings appear on this site, why they do, why they look like they do. This is Boscombe Down in 1933, 32, 33 thereabouts. Uh, just to orientate you, this is the officer's mess here, look, with the squash court you can see. Sergeant's another ranks mess there. Some surviving buildings from the First World War as well, this long timber structure up here you can see, and I'll come back to that. As, as we go on. It's not there now, I have to say. Um, this set is a broader question, of course. Why is a military airfield where it is? Why is Boscombe Down where it is? Why, why is Old Sarum where it is? Why is Kemble? Who decided that's a good place for an airfield? Well, if you apply basic archaeological principles, to, landscape principles to this, you can dig in. If you look at geographical location within airfields, or, or set, sets of airfields, the political landscape of the time, technology, and, of course, surviving monuments, you get the opportunity to try and work out where, why, and how these sites are where they are. Um, what we're going to do tonight is look at some of the early sites I don't intend to get to the Second World War for the simple reason that if we, if we dip our toe in that landscape, if, if that's the right terminology, we'll be here till about half past 11. Okay? Just to give you a flavour for that, at the end of the Second World War, there were over 750 airfields in Britain. And we know why, but you can break them up and still look at them in, almost individually or within a certain region or area and, and, and understand why the buildings are like they are and why things look like they are. But this is a vast subject. So I intend to take you around the genesis or the, the, those early years as to why some of these stations are where they are. Okay, there we go. This is a picture published in Archaeologia uh, in 1907 and it's titled Stonehenge from a War Balloon, which gives you a bit of an idea. Obviously, it's not in the, uh, in the care and ownership of English Heritage and the National Trust, as you maybe see here. Look, there's, there's poles keeping some of the monument up at this stage. But it's a fascinating picture because it also shows you what, what a point in the landscape this must have been because of all the tracks that run to it and from it. Yeah? Clearly, a, clearly a central point. Well, balloons have been used uh, by the military, we should say, by, since 1878. So quite a long time uh, when, when we look at this. They saw action in the Sudan, later in the Boer War, mostly for artillery spotting. Because if you can put a man in a balloon high, he can see what's going on a lot further on so the and draw the artillery down onto fire using, on occasion, telephones and things like that. It's when we actually... When we actually look at where military airfields are, that we can start to recognise some connections. This is Lark Hill. Now, Lark Hill was built, uh, or started, or these buildings, I should say, started, or were built in 1910, and these are the oldest hangars in the country. 
that are connected with military aviation. Now, I make this distinction, military, because the company that built this, British Colonial and Air, uh, Aircraft Corporation, they also built at Filton, because they were part of Bristol, um, Shell Beach, and Brooklands. And some of you might be familiar with the Brooklands site. Brooklands is four months earlier than this site, but Brooklands is also a civil site, okay? So Lark Hill is our first connection with military aviation. Why is it there? Well, in 1897, the War Office bought 22,000 acres of prime Wiltshire downland, which was that uh, section of Salisbury Plain up from, uh, travelling north from Lark Hill, basically because other gunnery ranges were too close to population, um, and shells were getting to the point where they were quite, uh, quite well uh, versed at, at, at ricocheting all over the place, uh, and the government was paying quite a bit of compensation out. So it actually bought a huge area of land so that the Royal Artillery could use that for its gunnery training. Balloons appeared soon after, because again, as I say, they'd been used in the Boer War, which is about the same period Salisbury Plain was initially purchased. In June 1909, a chap called Horatio Barber rented a small piece of land off the Royal Artillery and put a shed on it. And in that shed, he built an aircraft, or reassembled an aircraft, which he proceeded to demonstrate at every opportunity to any officer that would go past, showing that it was far more flexible to do artillery spotting from a movable object than it was to be inside a hydrogen-filled balloon, or dangling from a hydrogen-filled balloon. Because in the Boer War, some of these had been brought down. Moving target, obviously, more difficult. A year later, these sheds appear. And I must say that actually Barber turns up trying to sell aeroplanes to the Royal Artillery just nine months after Sam Cody does his first powered flight in this country. So you see technology starts to, starts to rattle away fairly quickly. Um, just to give some, uh, some provenance to these buildings here, this is the, the front and back. There are now barrack stores or something along those lines. Uh, the fronts have been filled in. The, backs are fairly, uh, the rear of the building is fairly, fairly still as it was original. Uh, these are listed buildings. If I just pop this picture up here, if you, if you bring your eye right down to here, look, that is that set of buildings, and that's in 1914, by which time there's quite a lot. This is a Henry Farnham, I think, isn't it? I mean, one of the questions is, would you go flying in that? And that was cutting-edge technology, don't forget, yeah, of the time. Um, but it, it, it serves to tell us that, of course... Um, this is, this, is, this is the origins of this station. Um, British and Colonial Aircraft Company, as we said before, um, they start training pilots from that date as soon as they set up. Yeah? And here is a course graduating in December 1911. The point to make is that um, the Royal Artillery is not interested uh, in training people to fly, but it is quite interested in taking people on who already have their Royal Aero Club licence. So uh, BCAC take the opportunity to use their school for officers who, who are interested in flying within the Royal Artillery. So this is where we are. I will come back to this picture because there's somebody on here who's, who's quite, uh, quite well connected with the rest of our story as we go on. So we've got Lark Hill. Lark Hill now is the centre, is the very first 
military airfield in that area. Okay. As we carry on, Central Flying School, CFS, which in itself is an iconic uh, aviation organisation, isn't it? Still going today. Pretty much reduced, I must say. Um, anyway, Central Flying School at Uphaven opened in 1912, and we think that picture's 1913, so not far, not far from that at all. The reason for an extra site was twofold. First of all, expansion. More aircraft than Larkhill could cope with. Um, and we'll come on to Farnborough for those of you thinking what, what's happened to Farnborough in a minute. Um, problem with Lark Hill was whenever aircraft went flying, it drew low, large crowds from the local area, certainly from a uh, Amesbury and Salisbury and places like that. And during the competition for contracts in May 1910, uh, one, of the, one aircraft ended up in the crowd, uh, May 1912 I should say, one aircraft ended up in the crowd killing a lad from Amesbury and injuring a few others. And at that point it was thought maybe we ought to move the aircraft away from public and, and, and not have it as, as, as much of a spectator sport as it had become. Uh, Uphaven was a classic, uh, classic site that was to appear, or, or its location, landscape, was to appear for the next 30 years and maybe further on than that. Because it's, for, has anyone been to Uphaven? Yeah, so you're familiar with, it's high, isn't it? It's laid out on what was originally gallops, so it's nice and flat, and it's well away from population. And anyone who's had to endure any RAF station certainly will know that wherever possible, they are away from, from local population. Now, so what we're looking at here is geographically now. It's, it's still focusing on, on Salisbury Plain, but it's also giving us uh, another position where we see extra airfields appearing as we go on. Surrounding somewhat salubrious, if you like. Um, on these early sites, or early stations, such as Uphaven, for instance, some of these buildings still survive. So timber buildings, not the tents, obviously, but timber buildings from that period are, are quite, a, uh, quite a rare but important part of the, uh, the archaeological record as it is now. The first... Oh, we've got a slime missing. Told you it was my first on these, yeah. Um... Lord Trenchard, I should say, was in the very first set of that. Anyone familiar with Lord Trenchard? Royal Air Force? Yeah. Um, <coughs> let's just run through what CFS was about, or the background to that, before we get, to, get too deep into this. If we run back to 1911, February 1911, uh, the Air Battalion for the Royal Engineers is formed. This is where... Um, where we start to have um, a differentiation, and this brings us back into Farnborough. Uh, within, within the Air Battalion, there's two companies. Number one, balloons and kites, that's at Farnborough. Okay. So, so whilst it's military, it's not powered aircraft, which is what we're trying to look at. Uh, and number two company, which is the powered aircraft side of things, that appears at, uh, at Lark Hill. So this, again, cements the fact that Lark Hill is indeed the earliest of these military stations. BCAC trained pilots for the Air Battalion. The, the previous slide with, the, with all the chaps hanging on the aircraft, that is exactly what's going on there. That is one course for the Air Battalion being trained, who graduate in uh, 1911. Just for completeness... April the 13th, 1912, the Royal Flying Corps is formed. Now, th th now, there is a reason for this within CFS because Royal Flying Corps is not 
really designed as a force. It's designed as a logistic answer because uh, the, the Navy, obviously, want to run uh, flying, and so do the Army. There's a growing rift between those two services in Parliament, certainly, uh, as to who should control this. Royal Flying Corps is, 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 is an attempt to try and parallel everything, if you like, stop suppliers having to build contracts for one firm, uh, for one service, and then a different service with slight modifications, which is exactly where we are today, isn't it, for those of you who know. Um, however, by the 1st of July 1914, Royal Naval Air Service is formed, and the Navy do indeed go off on their own, as, as, and we all know that. CFS, stewed, uh, stu a staff picture of, uh, of CFS, just to underpin what we've said about this growing rift. Captain Payne. Captain Payne was ne obviously a naval officer. He was the commandant of CFS. The idea was that uh, if they'd given it to the army, considering uh, Lark Hill was operated by still by the Royal Artillery, then the Army would consider that they actually ran the whole thing. You still needed a licence from the Royal Aero Club, so people were still training at Lark Hill, um, and as we said before, Filton and Station at Brooklands and stations like that. This CF, but CFS is not there to train people to fly, it is to, there to train instructors. Okay for aviators to hone their skills. And if they were successful on this course, they got their license fee back. So, uh, so it was uh, flying by private venture, but if you passed this course, then you were reimbursed at the end of it, your, your actual license fee. Uh, anyway, the reason we've got this up is because there, in an army uniform, is one Major H. Trenchard, who became, later Lord, of course, uh, the father of the modern Royal Air Force. So uh, and he was on the first graduating course from CFS as well and went on to staff from there. So, so basically, he's, he's already in the running. Of course, CFS, Uphaven, again, starts to fill up. So 1913, another set of gallops just down the road, but again, very close to, uh, to, to Salisbury Plain, is taken over and converted uh, to, well, what becomes now uh, Netherhaven Camp. Now, I think this, in, this picture is interesting because there, that is the concentration, as it was known, as it was known as a concentration camp, strangely, um, in 1914, this picture on the left. And it's concentration camp because that's every aircraft that was then owned on the military register stationed there on and off uh, for exercise. But I'll draw your attention to the tents you notice the tents are actually aircraft-shaped, look. You see? Well, if you think about how flimsy these things are, yeah, you don't want to leave them out at all, do you? Because, the, you know, I mean, it's not like the Hercules they leave on the planet line. I mean, it's, you know, these things are disappearing a good gust. And, of course, Netherhaven, the same as Lark Hill, uh, the same as Uphaven, sorry, are both fairly high-lying compared to the rest of the ground around them. Uh, that gallops again, things like that. The point to make with, up, uh, with Netherhaven is that uh, a substantial amount of the early architecture survives on that station. Uh, black and yellow chalets that were all the officers' mess and officers', uh, officers accommodation. Some of the mechanics' accommodation as well. A hangar to take Hadley Page bombers is still there. You know, so it's so quite, a, quite a substantial site. So if we just round that up quickly, 
we take Salisbury Plain, you see the, the big uncultivated area in the middle. This is a recent picture, obviously. Um, it's uncultivated, obviously, for a reason. Lark Hill appears in 1910. Uphaven in 1912, Netheraven 1913. Well, why are they there? They're there because of that. So if we're thinking about this geographically, why, why is the cradle of avi military aviation laid where it is, and it, it's known as the cradle, cradle of military aviation, why do we have these three stations, Lark Hill, um, Uphaven, and Netheraven, where they do? It's because of Salisbury Plain, and it's because of that early... Uh, level of entrepreneurialism that we get with uh, Horatio Barber and the uh, British and Colonial Aircraft Company, which is actually um, the Bristol Aircraft Company, isn't it? That's what it becomes later on. Uh, and that chase for contracts for, for spotting art for artillery um, from the Boer War onwards. So this is why we see this here. So, it's, so technology isn't really a driver here as much as the landscape itself is, in this case. Okay, if we skip on then, we go to the First World War, we all know this. Um, of course, we go to war over Belgium pretty much on the 4th of August. Um, and as, as, as is the situation all the time, um, technology goes into overdrive. Some huge developments driven initially, of course, uh, in the first... Ten years of, of the century uh, by the Navy through designing dreadnoughts, destroyers, uh, the submarine profile that appears and everything as we go on like that. But aviation is not far behind by the time the war starts. Problem is, it's such a big subject that what I want to do is just look at two areas. Royal Naval Air Service um, airship stations, which I think is something that not, that's not often touched on, so I just want to touch a little, show a little bit of the architecture that's there and some of the stations that, that were there at the time. And training depot stations, because they're the answer to why Second World War expansion period, or pre-Second World War expansion period, airfields are shaped like they are and laid out like they are. Okay. So, RNAS airship stations. 13 major stations were built through the war on, in, in Britain, with 17 substations with slighter infrastructure within them. So, so not a vast amount, as you, as you would imagine, or as you can see. Five manufacturing sites, Vickers, for instance. They, you know, most of the shipbuilders actually built airship as well. The government owned two sites, and a further eight were um, just started, or certainly on the drawing board, but never completed because, the end of, because of the end of the war. So what did an airship station look like? Well, I thought I'd choose this one because this is another one that people don't really uh, associate. Well, you wouldn't associate the Orkneys with an airship, would you? If you think about the size of an airship um, and the wind involved. Um, these are Thomas Kent photographs that I think are fantastic, really. This is just at the end of the war. Uh, Caldale Air, Air Station, and you can see the airship hangar in the distance there. Huge, huge undertaking. And when we get to actually what, what surviving structures there are, um, it, it'll give you some idea as to why there maybe weren't so many as, as we thought there might have been. Of course, this must have been a bleak place to look to live as well, as you would imagine. 
but it's on the coast, and this is the point to make. If we look at the structure quickly, I mean, that's huge, isn't it, for North Star airships, uh, with some wind breaks as well. Well, we'll come on to the wind breaks uh, a little bit later on, but, uh, but this is archaeology that doesn't survive. Sheds maybe do. So why are they where they are? Well, they're all around the coast, as we've just mentioned there. Here's, here's several, um, looking at, at the Irish Sea, pretty much, in the western approaches. If we look at Walney Island first, just mentioned that one up there, that was a manufacturing site for Vickers, and it had been moved twice because of the amount of bombardment from submarines, would you believe? Because it was fairly obvious on the coast. I mean, any of these airship stations, with the, with the hangarage on, it's fairly, uh, <laughs> fairly obvious, to say the least. The reason we have this spread like this, though, is because they're used for U-boat spotting. Ship protection originally, but U-boat spotting later on. And this area is known as U-boat or submarine alley in the First World War. Um, because we have goods and equipment coming in from the, from, uh, from the rest of the world to support Britain. And later on, of course, we have American troops coming in as well. And if you can imagine the carnage of a troop ship being tornado, uh, tornado, torpedoed. So the reason these airship stations are why they are is because these are two major port areas for Britain supporting the war. And this is mirrored as well, I must say, around the east and south coast. Not so much north, but certainly around the south and east coast. Airships come in various sizes and shapes, just so we'll get back to, uh, back to talking about that. Everyone familiar with the R100 and the R101? Well... The numbers actually are sequential, unlike aircraft numbers where they tend to be, uh, you know, ZA, ZX, or, or however, however you view them, X, Z. These, like this, this is North Star, so this is a North Star type, number four. Yeah, the next one in the production line will be five, six, seven. So R101 is a rigid, and it's the 101st airship built. So it's as simple as that. So it's really quite easy to work out how old they have from that. Anyway, as you can see here... They're a little bit unwieldy. You can see the amount of people just hanging onto the guide ropes here, look. Any amount of wind or gusts or anything like that, and the thing would be away up the field, as they say. Um, quite a lot of the early, early uh, gondolas that are on the bottom are no more than aircraft without wings. So, so the pilots and the, and the crew were exposed as well. And then they spend long time, the long periods over the North Sea looking for ships or submarines. And this just gives you an idea of the precariousness of, uh, of that existence. I mean, you can see we've got the engineer up here wondering if he's going to brave this to sort this clearly stopped propeller out, or the engine, uh, and this chap with a machine gun sat here, look, as well. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, it's... And don't forget all that hydrogen above you as well, you know, just, just to keep you... A, so, a precarious occupation. Just the same as the flimsy aircraft, airships need hangarage. This is a shed at Howden. It was over 800 feet long, 120 feet high. This is a rigid airship, and it's got four North Seas in there as well. And I'll draw your attention to the machine gun nest on the top of these, just in case they get bounced by fighters or foreign aircraft. So quite a, quite a precarious existence, but the buildings... The buildings were massive undertakings. And, of course, the problem with all this steelwork is if you're putting it into an aircraft hangar, you can't put it into a battleship. 
or tank or anything else. We think it's difficult to pin it down, but we think there were 68 of these structures nationally. Well, 68, you know, that's a huge amount of steelwork. Um, which is why we end up with mooring out stations. Now, mooring out stations don't leave any archaeology at all. Uh, and basically what they are, royal engineers go into an area of forest near the coast, chopping a big section out of that, provide it with bell tents or maybe a local farmhouse nearby, something like that. And, and it was enough to be able to station not these big ones, but certainly the smaller North Seas, Coastals and Sea Stars, um, overnight with steel guide ropes just tying them to the trees in these, in these areas. And believe it or not, they could withstand up to 60-mile-an-hour winds in those areas. So, and and that, that sort of existing architecture does not survive, obviously, because it is no more than just a, just a removal of trees. Others do, though. RF Cardington, anyone familiar with that? Yeah, well, there we go. This is at Cardington. So what we've got here is... Uh, the near shed, which is original to the site, but slightly extended because of R101, I think it was there, wasn't it? 100 or 1, one or the other. Um, this one was brought from Pullum, Royal Nervalesa Station Pullum, uh, in 1928 and placed on that site. You get some idea now as to how big these structures are and how, mu how much materials they used. The point to make with them are that they're... they're classic buildings for their period and the technology is, is typically First World War, isn't it? It, it linked on into the 30s uh, and it, we, could talk, we could talk about the Zeppelins and the like later on, but um, in, in the mid-30s, but airship technology is not really a, um, anything other than the First World War technology and, and that's why I wanted to just show you some of those bits with that. Training depot stations was the other point I was going to make looking at training depots. These are the most recognisable of First World War airfield sites. They have a standard layout, and this layout is important because it, it does drive airfields up till about 1940, 1941, if you like, as, as to how they're laid out. And we end up with 68 of these across Britain. Now, the, the point to make with training depot station is that they are a late development in the First World War. They don't occur with the First World War. If you look at the Battle of the Somme, uh, July 1916, the Royal Flying Corps boasted 39 squadrons of 410 aircraft for that operation. In two months, they lost 308 airmen. Two months, that is phenomenal. I mean, you cannot really keep up with that attrition if you think about it. You know, it's, so something had to be done. A lot of that was not to enemy fire, though. And that's, that, that's the point to make, and that's where we come back uh, to start talking about training again. Um, initially, training was fairly, a, a fairly ad hoc affair. This is, a, as it says there, 28 Squadron Number 1 Camp at Yatesbury, if anyone's been to... I don't know if anyone did their national service at Yatesbury, if they've been that, yeah? The huts weren't much different, I do believe, were they, to be honest, yeah, when all said and done. But I think this is a fantastic picture. I'll just take you around it a little bit, because we've got... There's no beds, look. They've taken the beds up. That's what these are. Yeah, for the bull night, because there's a big pile of brushes there and things in the middle, and some bikes down the end there. That's it. And, and knowing Yatesbury, I can imagine how cold it was. I, I would imagine that pot-bellied stove doesn't do much, does it, unless you sat on it yeah, at the time. Um, problem was, training was extremely ad hoc, because aviation was developing through the war, certainly through the early periods of the war. Problem is, 
training brigades, as they were known then, were, were just training almost to an ad hoc basis. They had aircraft, they trained people to fly that type, keep out of trouble, blogs, just get off you go to war. Yeah? The two things that you don't need when it actually comes to tactical flying. And this was a problem. Pilots were taught to avoid dangerous circumstances. Whereas, you know, that's a bit useless when you're going to war, isn't it? I mean, the most dangerous circumstance you're going to find yourself in, really. Um, and obviously, many were killed. And they were killed because they ended up in spins and situations like that that they couldn't get out of. Now, remember this picture here I showed you? I brought, draw your attention to Robert Smith Barry. He realised very early on, and he was one of the early aviators, um, that, that this was not the, the, the way to go. Basically, pilots would be better served if they were trained to get out of dangerous situations once they recognised what they were. So people were spin-trained. That's how to do it. Because tactically, that's great. If you could spin out of a dogfight, that gave you the edge. Another thing he did was he put the student in the front of the aircraft. Prior to that, if you had, if you had a two-seat training aircraft, the pilot sat in the front and did all the controls, and the student, more often than not, sat in the back looking over his shoulder. Well, what Smith Barry did was swap that round so that the student was in the front and the instructor was in the back, which is something that the RAF still do today. So, so this is an, an innovation from that period there. He also um, went one up on, the C on CFS and brought together the School of Special Flying at Gosport, where instructors that were not involved in basic training were given specific training in tactical flying. And he also changed the, the way people were taught at, at the basic ab initio level by um, making sure that students knew how the aircraft worked. It wasn't just something that you had somebody else a, a deal with, because he reckoned that if students knew the limitation of the engines and how the aircraft flew, they would be less likely to put them into situations that were dangerous, but they would know the limits of that aircraft if they needed to have tight, high-G turns, for instance, which sounds a bit awkward in a, in a biplane, I know, but certainly the same situation. What he also did was he gave, a, he designed, probably off a French, at the back of a French station visit he paid, the training depot station. This is uh, Royal Flying Corps Boscombe Down, 1917, and it's still under construction. You can see the hangars. There are still. You see these banana-shaped things here. Those are the roof truss that they're going to place over here. So they're still building these hangars in this picture. Um, quite a lot of the station infrastructure is already there, but a lot of people are still in tents. Look, so we've still got the original appearance. Uh, as we saw with Netherhaven and places like that, but actually it's been formalised. And with a lot of these stations, there's actually a narrow-gauge railway running up and down here as well, so, so, so quite a bit there. point to make is that that training depot station is a la lot less ad hoc than the um, Yatesbury and stations like that where they were just built pretty much as they needed them. If we look at the layout of the, uh, of the TDS here, don't forget, aircraft are still flimsy, so they still need hangarage. We have three general sheds, which are double span, and I'll, give you, I'll show you a picture of a couple in a moment. Each one of these contain a squadron and a repair shed, because obviously aircraft go US on occasion, need various pieces of work done on them. So Smith Barry contained the aircraft within a certain area, not park them all over the airfield in sheds, tents, and anything else he could lay their hands on. 
Next to that, of course, is a technical site. Now, a technical site is everything from um, blacksmiths, painters and dopers, all, all, that, all that sort of thing, armory, uh, and, and as we go on, anything else you would understand like that. And then the domestic site. And remember, uh, Building 17 I was talking about that we had demolished at Boscombe that really started this off. That was this one. So there's a round barrow look, and there's a, that was the end of the building that you saw in the picture. So TDS actually make, the, make efficiencies, if you like, by the way they're built, because this is quite a set layout. And this layout is transmitted onto all of the stations of this type as well. I should draw your attention to just one other thing, the women's hostel, obviously well away from, yes. from that, you see, and rightly so. Surviving architecture, training depot stations appear all over. Um, quite a bit of it still survives. That's a general shed, double space, as we said before. This is at Old Serum. There's the aircraft repair shed, also Old Serum. For those of you that are familiar with the Battle of Britain, great film that it is, you know at Duxford when they blow up the hangar, that's the aircraft repair shed. Now, there's still comment today as to whether the film crew actually had permission to demolish that hangar in that film, so, uh, which is, I think is quite smart. Uh, a watch office, this one at Duxford, talking about Duxford. Watch office is the forerunner, if you like, to uh, air traffic or rudimentary aircraft control. Blacksmiths, painters and dopers. This is a ventilation tower to take... You, you know what dope smells like, some of you that have been involved with aircraft. It's quite pungent, isn't it? And, and you, you almost forget it's there 10 minutes after you've been using it, which is worrying. Um, so quite a ventilation process that, that, that we have a blacksmith next door to it, which is quite worrying in itself, of course, isn't it, if you think about it, um, due to its flammable nature. These are listed buildings at Duxford, again, these. Yeah. Although you can find these on other stations, Old Serum, again, how it still maintains this. In fact, I think it's a, it's a restaurant of some sort at, um, at Old Serum now. Duxford, again, the armoury, various other small structures. So, so these buildings do survive. Also, if you go hunting, you can find them. Lopcombe Corner, for instance, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, on the Wiltshire-Hampshire border, was a training depot station uh, of the hundred or so buildings there. There's about six left. This is the part of the sergeant's mess, which is now used just industrially. Uh, lake, anyone who's driven uh, up around Stonehenge, around that way, and seen this water tower, this is actually the, the last remnants of uh, the training depot station there. So most of the other architecture is gone. Uh, I think there's an engine repair shop there as well, but that's it. So, so there's bits around. After the war, the Air Force, or the Royal Air Force, we're not talking so much about the Royal Naval Air Service here, but the Royal Air Force is pretty much snuffed out, it has to be said. Um, if we look at the footprint, um, 301 airfields in 1918... That does not include all the landing out stations for the home defence airfields, which were probably no more than a field with a bell tent in it, uh, each squadron on the east coast having 15 to 20 other fields that they could land in in an emergency or park overnight or, or whatever. So, so this is just stations with infrastructure on. Now, of course, uh, First World War, people gifted stations to the war office or, or land to the, to, to the war office because it was their uh, patriotic duty to do so. And they lent areas. They rented um, big tracts of land uh, to, to the government for the use of airfields as well, or for the building of airfields. And only a very few were actually compulsorily purchased. 
So most of the, the station footprint was fairly uh, rickety, should we say. By 1921, there were only 30 airfields in this country. Uh, most of them have disappeared um, through demolishing. All the train, a lot of the training depot stations are demolished straight away. A lot of the fighter units are demolished straight away. Um, all the hangars are taken as scrap. You know, I mean, so, so, so things like that. A, a good example is uh, Upper Hayford. It was a First World War station. Returned to agriculture afterwards. Uh, Abingdon returned to agriculture. Shawbury, agriculture. So completely erased off the landscape. However, <laughs> by 1923, it's, it's considered that, we're going to, that there may well be a bit of a problem brewing. And it's pretty much to do with the reparations that have been forced upon, uh, Europe, forced upon Germany uh, by the Versailles Treaty and, and the likes. Because France doesn't feel, or France and Belgium doesn't feel that Germany is actually paying up as quickly as it should do and inv invades the Ruhr uh, in 1923. Now, the problem is, with the British economy, is it relies fairly heavily on coal and the export of high-quality coal, um, all, uh, the, the, think of the flu pandemic and everything else that goes on after the First World War. Uh, Britain has taken on a huge uh, empirical debt. We've gone from a creditor to a debt in a nation. We own extra pieces of the world now because we've taken over parts of the German Empire. Um, we need coal sales to try and raise some revenue. And then suddenly the French are dumping cheap German coal onto the, onto the market. And then, of course, that causes, uh, causes a depression. It pushes the coal price down in this country. The private mines don't want to pay their miners, so therefore we end up with a general strike. And this is all to do with the, the sort of realignment, if you like, of the Second World War. Oh, First World War, sorry. So, as you would imagine, yeah, relations with France are fairly strained at this point, certainly in the early 1920s, and it sparks the 240 debate by Lord Trenchard. Basically, what that is, he reminds the British government in 1924 that over the whole period of the First World War, approximately 240 tonnes of bombs were dropped on Britain by aircraft or airships. The Gotha bomber raids of 1916, 17, 18, or partially 18, um, across London, uh, airship Zeppelin raids and such like. He now tells us that France, in his assessment, has an air force that can actually deliver that per day. So this raises an eyebrow, of course, with the, uh, with the government. And they start to uh, they set plans in motion to develop the aircraft estate, airfield estate, from that 30 upwards fairly rapidly. And there's two driving factors. The threat, which is France. Well, it's always been a threat, hasn't it, on and off, but, uh, but certainly... Not Germany, but France, and existing locations. Which ones can we buy back that still have infrastructure on them? Because obviously that's a lot cheaper. Good old Boscombe down, back to that. I, sorry, I keep going to Boscombe. I'm a bit familiar with that one. Uh, this is Boscombe in 1932. Um, by now it's been built. It's got a new A-shed with it. And, and this is just another orientation shot of the, the pictures I've shown you already of Boscombe. But you can also see the early architecture look, the earlier training depot station, the three squadron sheds, aircraft repair shed, parts of the hostel, women's hostel still there, um, officers' mess there. Quite a lot of the structures have gone. Um, well, anyway, 
This was bought back in 1925 off a couple of Salisbury uh, builders who'd bought it. It was one of the few stations that were actually, was actually purchased and then resold at the end of the war. Messrs. Wharton Way, they were called. And they said they want £50,000 for this airfield if the government wished to buy it back. Well, anyway, after a lot of debate, the government bought it for £15,000. So, uh, you know, quite cheap in today's prices. But what they were after was the fact that it already had all this infrastructure on it. You can could, you could build more sheds, uh, more uh, hutting and such like, but the aircraft sheds are a different matter altogether, aren't they? Major investment in architecture. 1925, we see the, de- the development of the air defence of Great Britain. Uh, into three areas. The Wessex bombing area, which gives you a clue. Um, again, Boscombe Down is part of that. The fighting area, which is around London, and the air defence group, which runs uh, training and, and such like. In 1926, there's a slight realignment and the coastal areas are brought in, which you can, you can maybe just start to see fighter command in there, coastal command and things like that. Yeah. No transport command, of course, that doesn't appear till, what, 42, 43, so a long way on. But, but we are starting to see now the alignment, all due to the French, don't forget, the alignment of the British military airfield footprint as we see it today. So we now have this, um, this particular layout, which is, again, we talked about training depot stations giving us that footprint, this same idea of domestic technical engineering or or domestic technical flying appears on these stations as well even uh, even when they're not not complete clearance and rebuilds this is the domestic site now at Boscombe Down all the all the hutting was removed and the airfield or the, the domestic side of the airfield spreads to the east slightly if we look at Abingdon we see again domestic site look you see all the married quarters technical site in here and then hangerage there, look. You see the, th- the four A-type hangers. Yeah. Now, that still survives, doesn't it, Abingdon? It's, it's, it's still used by the Army today. Most of that infrastructure is still there, although buried in amongst lots of other. If we look at some of the existing buildings from this period, um, this is the operations room at Duxford, which is a listed building. There's an A-type hangar that I took a few years ago um, at Abingdon, so they still survive, although it's the logistics corps or someone that actually has them now. So quite a few stations uh, are still there. What's also added um, is the training footprint, which, of course, is Cranwell, Halton, and at the Staff College, as it was then, Andover. So, so, so we're starting to expand out a bit. Also, there was going to be a, um, a records office at uh, Wootton Bassett, of all places, but that never materialised. If we just look at the fighting area in 1928 around London, you see the, the, the point was Stanley Baldwin said, well, you know, the bomber will always get through. And that was, that was basically the, the layout. We can't defend against bombers. It's really a case of we kill more of their women and children before they kill more of ours. That was, that was the thought, thinking in the, third, in the certainly through the 1920s. And I think it was a bit of a throwback from the Gotha bomber raids where, where the aircraft had been flying so high that it was very difficult to bring them down. Um, and, and eventually, you only ended up with a small fighting area with fighters in it or home defence-type stations. And this is it. And this was just to protect the capital, nothing else. Well... 
I take you to 1940, I said we weren't going to talk about the war, but I mean the classic picture of German bombers over London and, and the Battle of Britain there, and then go back to this map. It's a damn good thing that we decided that the French may be our main problem. Because these stations here are 11 group sectors HQ, or they're sector HQs. Debden is the only new build for the Battle of Britain. Lots of fighter stations are built, Manston and places, all that sort of thing. But of the original architecture, or the, the existing stations at that time, these are all sector HQs. And they're only there because the French invaded the Ruhr in 1923. And as we know, the majority of the problems for the, for the southeast of Britain and beyond came from bombing raids from France in 1940 onwards, didn't they? So the infrastructure was already there. Even the Wessex bombing area, Boscombe Down, Abingdon, Harwell, and, and we go on, uh, is a long, long, uh, linear line across the downs, if you like, of stations going this way all with France, really, as its eye for a threat. So it's a good job. That was the case, really. So it's a, it's a good job that the French, French showed some, uh, demonstrated some slight belligerence, which is a little bit uh, unheard of on occasions, I must say. OK, anyway, I want to summarise, because otherwise we'll go on all night. Military airfields, then. If we just look at what we've looked at tonight, um, they're the product of... Entrepreneurs, certainly the first places, Lark Hill, Uphaven, uh, and, and the like. Francis, uh, Horatio Barber, as we said before, the British Colonial and Aircraft Company. Yeah, it's all about sales. It's all about selling this new technology to the Royal Artillery. We, look at, we can look at technology. All the airship stations are where they are because they're there for a specific reason. And they're technology that really only belongs in the First World War as well, aren't they, the airships? I mean, as, as time went on, there was quite inventive ways of shooting them down uh, on both sides. I've seen quite a few uh, pictures of Sopwith pups with, like, big Roman candle rockets on the struts, which they used to bring down uh, some of the zeppelins. And, of course... The problem with an airship is that once you dump your ballast, it climbs a lot faster, or used to climb a lot faster than most of the biplanes that were trying to chase them. However, the, the, the camel and the pup and, and, and Sopwith's work like that really did start to narrow that gap to a point where, uh, where they couldn't be, the, the Zeppelin couldn't be outclimbed or couldn't outclimb the fighter. Um, cost. Cost is something we can recognise on military airfields. Remember I said about training depot stations having three blocks to them? Yeah, that goes on to the later expansion period. Uh, of course, expansion starts with Scheme A in 1935, I think it is. And the airfields have that same classic shape with the, uh, the, 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 air, the airfield, the hangars in a crescent, then the technical blocks behind that, and then the, the domestics behind that. Of course, that makes bad tactical sense, doesn't it? Because if you put everything that you own in one point... Uh, and then, then come out with statements like the bomber will always get through. You're actually saying, well, there's no need to worry about it. Just aim for that corner of the airfield when you get over us. Um, so later on, airfields are dispersed and become a, a, you know, a lot more, more difficult. Those of you that are familiar with airfields from uh, 1942 onwards will be familiar with all the temporary brick structures that there are out in the fields around these sites. So a standard layout comes in. Air defence of Great Britain, through political threats uh, and political and military issues, drives what becomes, in the Second World War, those classic 
classic that groups such as Fighter Command and Bomber Command. But if we just think of these, if we just touch on these archaeologically for a moment, these are huge sites, aren't they, airfields? They're not like the, you know, the, the standard round barrow or, you know, the, the causeway enclosure, if you like, long barrow or something like that. I mean, that is a big station. And that's not showing you all of it. That's just one corner of Boscombe Down. If you think 1979, it was expanded to take two squadrons of F-111s as well. So it now has all that Cold War structure on it as well. It's... Um, they're quite a thing. And how do we record them? Yeah. Well, it'd be very easy to say, well, of course, they're all closing and being ground down into aggregate. But that isn't the case, of course. English Heritage have worked quite tirelessly, it has to be said, for the last 10 years, 15 years probably, uh, looking at structures on these sites. Uh, if we think of Wiltshire alone, there's lots and lots of structures that are, that are, um, that are listed. Lark Hill, those hangars we're showing you there. Hullavington, anyone familiar with that? Large swathes of that are now listed. Um, if we go on into the Cold War, think of the um, ground, uh, ground launch cruise missile site at, Upper, at um, Greenham Common, the silos that everyone was so concerned about. They are now a scheduled ancient monument, never mind. And, and they were built in 83, or completed in 1983. It's because of the, the, because of the, the, the note that goes with that that they're in, uh, classed as a monument. Um, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't really say that airfields are disappearing it's just how you manage them. If you look at Blake Hill Farm there, it never had much infrastructure on it anyway. This is one of those dispersed sites from the war. You can see this is where people lived. These are all the quarters and the messes and everything else. Look, way out away from this very obvious airfield. This is now owned by Wiltshire Wildlife, and it's recognised it, it, it covered... Um, I think it, 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 it answered the commitment of the government to, to have, what was it, 20% of their... Um, their uncultivated grassland or something, something along that sort of line. You know, a huge footprint. So it's actually now, it was owned by GCHQ after the war. Um, so, so this has never been tilled. The concrete's gone now from this, uh, and, it, and it's a conservation area. But should, can we conserve an area like that if it was an airfield with all the buildings still on it? You know, I mean, you can imagine the upkeep there is of that. That doesn't deter groups uh, from suggesting that's the case. Look at Duxford. That is not a military station. It is a museum. You know? uh, if we look at Upper Hayford, there is an argument there that that, and it's still raging at the moment, that that is a Cold War stroke, everything else period site should also be conserved from top to bottom. Now, what you think about that, I don't know, but it's a very, very difficult one. <coughs> right, enough of me. I've just got to show you something. Who's familiar with Charmy Down? Good. What is that? Because... <laughs> I struggled with that. That's on, is that part of the airfield? It's temporary big structures, isn't it? As, as, we, as we see, I have no idea. It's on the, on the A48, isn't it? On the, on the side of the road, yeah. A46, sorry, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I've got my Welsh head on there. Um, I don't know. Answers on a postcard, I'm afraid. I, I really don't know. I wouldn't like to say. It's strange. And this is the point to make, that even though this, built, this airfield opened in 1940, which is not too long ago, we're struggling now to try and find out what some of the archaeology is. Yeah, so, so, it's, so, so whilst you think, oh, airfields, there is something modern, actually we need to be recording what they are as soon as possible because otherwise we, just, we lose it. You know? I mean, okay, good gust of wind, and that will be the case for them anyway, I would imagine. But, uh, but there we are. Okay. 
All right, I hope that was useful.